This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Parsh B'Shalach, 5780, we have Parak Tazayim, Pazak Lama, an amazing Pazak. The Bnei Yisrael called the name of this thing, and it tasted like a wafer coated in honey. So the question is obvious, who are the they in the Pazak? Who's the they? Who is the base you saw that refers to? The Chizkuni. It says, refers back to Pazak Tezvav, where the Jews looked at it. They saw the bread that fell from the heavens, and they said, Mon who? What is this? They meant to say, Mahu, what is it? But their mouths messed up and they said, Manhu, and it's exactly what Akash Baruch Hu wanted them to call it. So they said, Manhu, it is exactly that, it is Man. Man is a lashon of Mazon, a lashon of food, something that's going to be eaten. And in Daniel, Parak Aleph, it says, Vayiman lohem that the king Nebuchadnezzar gave to Daniel and Hanan and Mazon, that's the Man. Therefore, when the Man fell and they saw that it was going to be their food, they called it Man from that point forward. Rav Hirsch says that, no, it does not refer to B'nai Yisrael, it's Beis Yisrael. Beis Yisrael refers to the women. They were the ones who ran the household. They were the ones who saw that this was going to sustain their households and that was going to be there. And they called it Mun based on that. It was going to be something that was for them. That's what makes the women so special. Their absolute belief that everything's going to work out. Their trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that everything's going to be done in the best possible way. They were content with the man, no matter what, when the men were not sure what it was or what they were going to do with it. That's the difference. So the base Yisrael refers to the women. The women called it the man, saying, this is what we need to sustain our families. The men weren't involved at all. The Tzedah Lederach says the same. The women loved the man. You know why the women loved the man? Listen to Tzedah Lederach. Tzedah Lederach is one of the Pirushim on Rashi. Tzedah Lederach says, because the women often got into fights with their husband. You know what the mun did? The mun clarified any fight that you could possibly have. If you ever had a suffix about something, the mun was able to show you exactly what it was. You wondered about which person, what kid belongs to what family, etc. The mun would show based on where it would fall and how it would fall for the family. They knew where everybody was. Different answers. The women knew that they were right because the mun kept proving them correct. The men kept being proven wrong. So the, men, the men were upset their secrets were revealed. The things that they had, the issues that they had, the mun got the mun took care of. The women were happy because it proved them right again and again and again. Says the Tzedek Lederach. That's why they named the mun. They were happy with all the men were not so happy from the truth telling of the mun itself. What an unbelievable answer, isn't it? Time it a crowd. Rochayin says since the women were the ones who baked it and cooked it, as that mentions in the pasuk, they were told to do lekavod Shabbos. They baked and cooked the mun lekavod Shabbos. Esasher tofu afu vaser tevashelu bashelu. They were the ones who were able to name it something, and therefore the women are the ones that name it something. Why in English is it called mana? You've seen that before, right? Where does that word mana come from? Mun should simply put, be put, it should be mun, food. So why is it called mana? So I think it's from Targum Yonas Menuziel. Targum Unculus translates mun as mun. Targum Yonas Menuziel translates mun as mem nun aleph, which is mana. I have a feeling that that's where this comes from, that it really does come out from over here. Rev. Aryeh Kaplan, and only Rev. Aryeh Kaplan, in the Living Torah, in the big purple book that looks conservative, says, if you say the words, what is this, in ancient Egyptian, ancient Egyptian, the words are, ma-nu, ma-nu, on that ancient Egyptian. And therefore, it makes sense that mun who the words that they said in Pasuk Tesvav, led into the name that we call it today, and that's exactly that. 
obviously, mon from Pasuk Tezvav is there, but he says it's interesting. In Egyptian today, the word man also means a gift, which means this would be a gift from Shemayim. We're not saying that this word is Egyptian. It very well could be Hebrew. But according to Ravari Kaplan, it's possible that it stems from their Egyptian that they had, and they said manu when they saw it for the first time, and therefore it became manhu as if it was considered the man itself. Either way, that I think is where we get the word mana from, we're from right over there. The Tzoramar says, technically, they had already called it man in the previous Pasuk and Pasuk Tezvav. After they heard that a double portion fell for them on Erev Shabbos, they understood something a lot deeper. Remember, the man fell for them every day of the week. They were told not to go out on Shabbos because it was going to fall double on Erev Shabbos. They were going to use it for Shabbos by having it fall before Shabbos started. That's what ended up happening. Because of that, they called it man. It was a portion of food prepared for them, given to them from above. Here's how the Torah says it. Listen to this. The word man is mana, a portion. Mazon, food. Muchan, prepared. And mana, a gift. Right before Shabbos had started. So man has a four four word connotation like a way of understanding it in four different ways that's the idea behind it the shach says when they saw that it didn't fall on Shabbos and Yom Tif, the man did not fall on Shabbos and Yom Tif, they understood that it was a kingly food it was a special food and totally different and therefore man is the same gematria as melech obviously as as a 90 because for that reason on Shabbos and Yom Tif, they cooked it differently they didn't just eat it plain even though it could be eaten plain and it was perfectly fine to eat it raw so to speak they ate it differently and they prepared it differently to change it from what it was during the week to show how special some chashivas for it they gave some chashivas to the man for Shabbos itself yeah they, I don't know what they did exactly, but yes, the answer is probably they used some sort of spice, and yes, they probably added on something else to it, aside from them on themselves. Where did they get food? I would assume they used it from other people. They bought from other people. They brought stuff out of Mitzrayim. Yeah. The shum, they didn't have garlic. They didn't have certain things. The five different foods that they had that they complained about later on, but that might be... 39 years later, they complained about it because they ran out. By this time, they probably still had something. And again, they could always buy. You can find people that are merchants that are selling something. If you have 3 million people in the middle of the midbar, somebody is going, (laughs) you think it's a Jew, but somebody is going to come to you and say, like, I'm going to make a pretty penny off these people. You'd think that somebody's going to come along and do something. So I don't know. The Malbim said they truly believed that everything was going to be given for them. And it's more than that. The Malbim says a beautiful verse about how you prepare for Shabbos and then Shabbos prepares for the upcoming week. And I know we don't always see this, but I consider it this way. When I look at my schedule and what I have, Shabbos is the time where I actually get to rest a little bit longer than I normally do. I don't get a lot of sleep during the week, but on Shabbos I get I don't want to say a double portion of sleep. I won't get that. But I get a little bit more. Those extra hour or two that I can get of sleeping on Shabbos itself helps me prepare for the rest of the week. I'm not exhausted. I go in. I wish I could be a little bit more alert and awake. My kids will testify that there are times on Friday night when it's a little difficult for me. Maybe, maybe a little difficult for me. But regardless, right, the fact that I can get that extra hour or two is amazing for the upcoming week. And they (laughs) saw it in the month. They saw the food that they needed. Not only were they, they had their parnasa led up to them for Shabbos. They understood that the parnasa that they didn't get on Shabbos because they were davening and doing everything they needed for the upcoming week to be awesome. That's how they understood what the man was, and that's really what it's supposed to be. And that Seder Lederach says the reason why is because it was doubled up on Erev Shabbos. Mem and Nun are doubled up letters. Think about that for a second. How do you spell Mem? Mem, Mem, right? How do you spell Nun? Nun Vav Nun. 
They're doubled up letters. They're not the only letters like that. Vav is vav vav, right? Or vav alav vav or vav yud vav, etc. But regardless, these are letters that are doubled up. Mem and nun, they called it that. Now, what's zeragod? They called it a zeragod. It had the, It was like a seed of coriander. Rashi and Rashi brings that down. So it seems, according to Rashi, it was round like a coriander seed. A coriander seed. We'll see what that is in a second, but it was a totally different color. Coriander is brownish or reddish or black. The mun was pure white, and that's different. According to the Gemara in Yuma, it looked like the color of a pearl. We all know that a pearl is not exactly white. It's got that creamy color to it and a little bit of clarity to it. It's got an interesting, shiny color. The mun shone. The mun had a pearl-like lustrance. I think that's the word for it, that appeared on the outside. So although it was white, it looked a little bit different, while the seed, the coriander seed, was a light brown. So it looked like a coriander seed, but it wasn't the same color. It was white. Who kizera gud? Lavan. Not kizera gud lavan. Who kizera gud? It was like the coriander seed, but it was white. So what is coriander? So it is an old world herb of the carrot family. All parts of the plant are completely edible. You can eat every part of the plant, including the roots, but the fresh leaves and the dried seeds are the parts that are most traditionally used in cooking itself. Coriander is used in cuisines throughout the world. The leaves are variously referred to as cilantro in the U.S., not to be mistaken with cilantro with an E. The leaves have a different taste from the seeds with citrus overtones. That means it tastes sort of like orangey or lemony when it goes through. The seeds, when crushed, are described as warm, nutty, spicy, and orange flavored. Roasting or heating the seeds in a very dry pan heightens the flavor, aroma, and pungency. Ground coriander seed loses flavor quickly in storage and is best ground fresh. Coriander seeds are used as a spice in Indian curries. Anybody eat Indian food? Anybody like Indian food? Not me. Which often employ the ground food fruits in generous amounts together with cumin. Roasted seeds are eaten as a snack. They're the main ingredient of the two South Indian dishes, sambar and rasam. If anybody knows what those are, I don't. Coriander is also listed as one of the original ingredients of Coca-Cola. Nobody knows what the real Coca-Cola thing is. Maybe it's all mun. <laughs> I guess for some people it tastes like mun. But that's the idea behind it. I got all that from Wikipedia and two other sites about coriander. But it was, regardless, all of that is through. That's what coriander is. If you look on the sheet itself, it'll show you those seeds, the tiny little seeds of coriander. So here's a problem over here, guys. Look at that coriander. You see the coriander over there? You see how small they are? They're tiny. Look at the size of the leaves versus the size of the coriander seeds. Right? Those seeds are absolutely tiny. What did the mun look like? Are we saying that they were round like a coriander seed? But then why would you describe it as a coriander seed? Why not just say it's round? It seems, if we're describing it as a coriander seed, but white, the mun was much smaller than we think it is. What do you think, of, what do you think the mun was like? A tiny little marshmallow? Or like a giant marshmallow that fell down and was like this big? Right? They took a maleha omer. They took a certain amount of it. But maybe it was all tiny little white seeds. White seeds, white little round balls that look like coriander seeds, but they were actually look like pearls. And they grabbed a bunch of them, which makes sense why they would have to cook it if they wanted to cook it, but you could just eat it raw as well. The Chizkuni says it is referring to the size of the mun. The mun was tiny. It's in the Balpasuk Yudalit, it says it was dak kakfor. It was thin, like little snow pellets. And that could be thick or thin. I mean, in theory, you could have a bigger one, 
right? But that was the size of the coriander seeds. They're small and thin. And that's why it mentions that they are like the Zerah Gud. Rav Hirsch says this as well. He says the word Gud indicates small particles. It's from the word Gadad or Goad. Goad means to cut something up. Did you know that the man was small? Did anybody know this before? Did you have any idea? It's something that I think everybody misses out on, but that's what the mun could have looked like according to the Skiskuni, according to the reverse. It was small, they were tiny, but it says it straight out, Kizera Gud. Kizera Gud. According to the Skiskuni, that's the size. The Maral Diskin goes into why we have to know all the details, and he says there was mun that they kept. Does anybody know where the Tsinsenes Amun was? Where was that jug of mun that they kept afterward? Where was it? By the Aron Kodesh. By the Aron Kodesh in the first base of Mikdash, they had a Tzintzenes Amun that they kept with it since the times of the Mishkan from Moshe Rabbeinu. And it had Mun inside there. Says the Maral Diskin, people would deny it. Yirmiyahu pulled out the Zeragod from the Kodesh HaKadoshim, he was a Kohen, and brought it out to them and said, this is the Mun. Do you see what they had? They had the Mun. And the people were like, wow. But how would they know what it looked like? How would they have any idea what the mun looked like if they'd never seen it before? And that's why the puzzle goes in detail to tell you what it looks like. It's Kizera God, but it's Lavan, Kitzapichis Bidvash, etc. And it tells you, or tells you all those things, Dakak 4, and what it tastes like. Said if you see it in the future and somebody tells you you don't deny it, it's true, it's probably true, they're telling you the truth, that's what it refers to. The Yalkaruveni indicates from the Zohar there's a connection between the mun and Shavit God. Because we said it's like God, right? And we've been saying that's a coriander but Shevet Gud also could be referred to over here just like Shevet Gud didn't take their portion in Eretz Yisrael Shevet Gud went outside of Eretz Yisrael and lived on the other side of the Jordan River and did not enter Eretz Yisrael except to fight so to the Mun never came to them in Eretz Yisrael it stayed on the other side of the Jordan River so the Mun was only there when they were outside over here says the Al-Kuruveni to understand if Shevet Gud wouldn't have done what they did right? they could have lived in Eretz Yisrael they could have lived in Eretz Yisrael along with all of Klai Yisrael and there would have been more room for them. Who knows what would have happened? It all would have been perfectly fine. But it didn't happen. So too with the Mun. Had they not asked for it, the Mun would have landed for them in Eretz Yisrael. They never would have had to work a day in their lives. They had their grapes and their figs and their dates and all the other Shevaminim and everything else they would need. But they'd have the Mun for them, waiting for them. So that every day when they came home, they would just have the Mun. They would have no problems of Parnassah. But you asked for it. And therefore they got it outside of Eretz Yisrael and they lost it when they got into Eretz Yisrael. That was the loss that they had, says the al based on the Zohar. The Panini Kedem says the God's mother was Zilpah. God's mother was Zilpah, who was the only one of the most to not have the word Vatahar by her. Every other mother, it says Vatahar, she became pregnant, Vatelet, and she gave birth. By Zilpah, it was just Vatelet. Why? Apparently, she was so small, so thin, it was unrecognizable when she became pregnant. Although she was pregnant, she was able to hide it well enough that no one knew she was pregnant, and then all of a sudden she gave birth. And everybody was like, oh, wow, Zilpah was pregnant. I guess somebody knew. But that was who Zilpah was. The mun acted the same way. When it was absorbed into the body, you never knew it was there. So it's interesting. I mean, we're calling it Gud after Zilpah, really. But it is strange. Maybe because by Gud, she wasn't recognizably pregnant. I guess that's the idea behind it. But that's that. You would never have any idea that it's there. There's an amazing Dego Machna Ephraim, but I, it's a little hard. If you can see the Dego Machna Ephraim, I would suggest to see it inside. The Taurus Chaim Amunah says this answer is a big question. Mun stands for Maisenisim. So let's ask, why were you allowed to benefit from a miracle? 
There's a Gemarantinus, that says that they told people, don't eat miracle foods. If you see that a whole ship came where the Malachim took sand off the sea and put it on the ship and turned it into flour, they were warning people not to eat from that food. It's Mycenaeism. You can't benefit from Mycenaeism. When there was a great Rebbe, I can't remember his name, Rebbe Yossi? I, I, no, it's not Rebbe Yossi, I mean Eucharist. It's right there in Chavdal and Aleph. But when he, he saw... That there were, when he went to the marketplace and he used to give all of his money away to Tzedakah and the Gabbai Tzedakah would run away from him. He ran after the Gabbai Tzedakah and he was trying to buy something for his daughter's dowry and he gave all of his money over to the Gabbai Tzedakah. He left himself with one coin, bought a little bit of wheat, brought it back to his house and put it inside his silo and the silo was filled up with wheat because he was such a great tzaddik, filled up with wheat and the whole thing was there and he said, we will not get benefit from it. You're gonna get, he said, told his daughter, you're only getting as much benefit as everybody else from Klai Yisrael is getting from it. You can't benefit from Isaac. Klau Yisrael is benefiting from Mycenaeism every single day. How is that Shaykh, says the Torah's Chaim Amunah. Why is that Mutter? I'll tell you, the easy answer is because the Kaddish Baruch Hu allowed them to. And that's the easy answer, right? The easy answer is Kaddish Baruch Hu gave it to them, so therefore it's definitely clear. But I think there's something more to it, and the Torah's Chaim Amunah answers this idea. If you truly believe that Parnassah comes from Shemayim, then what difference does it make if it's a white coriander seed that looks like a pearl, that falls in huge amounts in the midbor versus a Kaddish Baruch Hu making a deal go through. You see, I, I know how we feel because I know I go to work and I sit there at my job and when I finish my job, I say, yeah, I got a paycheck because I worked really hard. I worked really hard and I did this and therefore I got my paycheck and I'm happy because I got this and I did it because I, I, I gained it. I, I got it myself. For me, the mun is my sinisim. Because I can make my own money, so if God gives me food directly into my hand, then it's a miracle. And for me, the mun is usher. I can't do it. I can't benefit from my sinisim. But if you consider the parnasa that God gives you miraculous, no, no, no. HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows me to do everything. And I couldn't do this on my own. It's a miracle that HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows me to do every single day that I can accomplish this. If you mamish consider it that, then the mun is no different. It's also a miracle. What difference does it make if it comes through a business deal that I negotiate or if it comes from the heavens and it lands on the ground in front of me? Either way, it's my sinisim. If it's my sinisim and we do regular things that way, it says Torah Chaim Amunah, it's the same thing over here. If you remember, this is the same board that we gave based on the Darash Moshe, Ramosha Feinstein, that we've given many times over. Rechanina Bedoso with the vinegar lighting instead of the, 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 what's it called, instead of the oil lighting. What difference does it make? The oil lights, the vinegar lights. What difference does it make to me? They're both miracles. Both of them are miracles. The fact that you wake up in the morning and you walk. Walking is a miracle. Yaakov Avinu, with the idea of him walking is a miracle. Malachim, sending Malachim is a miracle. It's all the same. The same idea the Ramosha used throughout, this is what the Torah Sachayim Vamuna is saying over here, and therefore it's not a problem to have Mycenaeism. If anybody else sees this question somewhere, how they were able to benefit from Mycenaeism through the Mun, I'd like to hear it. I haven't found the question. I've had this question for years, but the only place I found the question was this Torah Sachayim Vamuna. I'd like to see if anybody else says it. So if you hear it from anywhere, I'd love to hear if you heard the question from anywhere else. Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef, Nechamia says another answer. Parnasa only works if you're willing to help other people with it. So Vahaman Kizera Gud. Gud stands for Gomel Dalen. Vahaman, you'll get your Parnasa if Zera Gud. You're willing to plant seeds of Gomel Dalem, of giving to other people. If you're willing to do that, then the Mun tastes, everything's good, you'll have your Parnas and everything's there. Okay, next part. Sapich is Bidvash. It was like a wafer with honey, right? So it's a piece of dough fried in honey called Iskartin in the Mishnah, says Rashi. It's called Iskartin in the Mishnah, Mishnah is Chala Parakalaf Mishnah Dalet, and Unkelis calls it this as well. 
Iskarten seems like a piece of dough fried in honey. Fried in honey. I don't know what that would be. Is that going to be a donut? It's not exactly a donut, but it kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? A piece of dough fried in honey instead of oil, right? But fried in honey, that kind of sounds better than a donut. I don't know, but I, I think that's okay. Targum Yonis Menuzio calls it ashishian. Ashishin is a small round cake baked with honey or covered with honey. Similar. I don't think there's that much of a difference between them. They're just different types of ideas. The Ibn Ezra quotes from Sadia Gon. He calls it the Gon. This refers to a wafer. A wafer, a little bit of a hardened you know, piece of bread that was either baked with or covered with honey. But he himself doesn't know because the word sapichis doesn't appear throughout Tanakh says the Ibn Ezra. This is the only time it's ever used. So we don't know exactly what it's referring to. Septuagint, although it's not a raya, but it was written by the 70 Chachamim who were put in the two different, you know, in the 70 different rooms because it was 72. Because it was put together by them, the Septuagint says it that way. It's very likely that that's how they understood it. They understood it as a way for that. It's the Ibn Ezra Rosadi going in the Septuagint. Rav Kaplan, Rav Arya Kaplan, says based on Rishonim and Yuma Ayin Hayoma Bays, it was a poured batter, not a dough. How do you, if you have poured batter that you put on, you add on oil, what's that called? And you put it on a frying pan and you fry it together? It's a pancake. So we had, they had pancakes that they tasted like honey pancakes. And by the way, as a timeout, has anybody ever had a honey pancake? Because, okay, I don't know why we don't do honey donuts and honey pancakes, but this sounds like it is a gold mine right now. I have no idea what we're using oil for. Somebody's got to explain to me, somebody's a cook, why this wouldn't work. Yeah. Honey cakes, yeah, but those are bad. I want like a good honey cake, like an actual good honey cake. I'm sorry? Yeah, you know, I'm, not, I'm not, not going for any products in specific. But either way, regardless, and I know, and there are honey cakes on Rosh Hashanah that are absolutely good because of the Kavad Yamtiv. But aside from that, right, and that's that, and the Miyam Loez himself, in Rivari Kaplan says in the Miyam Loez that it's a donut. He quotes it as a donut. The Rashbam agrees. The word doesn't appear anywhere. But there is an, a word in Shmuel Aleph Perak Chavvav called Tzapachas Maim. Tzapachas Maim, obviously it's a type of kli. It doesn't help us here though, because I don't know how a type of kli would help you figure out what kind of a wafer slash donut slash cookie slash cake this would be. But either way, it does appear one other time, just as Tzapachas and everywhere else. Okay, Reverse points out something, and I didn't know this. If anybody's known this, Devash does not refer to honey in the Torah. Now that I knew. Because we all know in the Sheva Minim, the Sheva Minim, it goes through the Sheva Minim, and there is no word for Tamarim. It's Devash. It's Devash. Devash is not honey of bees in the Torah. It refers to a type of fruit juice that flows from these fruits. So therefore, the Devash over here may very well not be honey as we're translating it. It might be Kitsapichis, like a wafer Bidvash with Fruit juice, made with fruit juice, right? Maybe it's that way. Maybe the reason why it's called honey, says Refersh, is because the bees suck out the juice out of the flowers and make something out of it, maybe with their amazing bodies. Maybe that's the reason why it's taken to that way, but he doesn't say anything more than that. The grass, the famous question, it's really taken by the Chidah and Reveshel as well, the parties Yosef. They're all in the same category over here. They say the honey is 160th of the month. If you have Devash, Devash is 160th of the month. So he says, how would you know that Devash is 160th of the month. Where do you get that from? She says, if food that you add is kitsapichis bidvash, it tastes like a wafer and honey. What he says is, that means you probably took a little bit of mun, added it onto a piece of food. And we all know that all tastes are bottle bishishim. 
if you have 60 times that taste, it's bottle, you wouldn't be able to taste it whatsoever. Since you can still taste the honey taste in your wafer when you ate the mun with it, it must be that it tastes like honey and it's a si- honey is 160th, at least 160th of it. There could be more of that in the, in the mun itself that was more that tastes like honey, but it's at least 160th like that. Okay, say it a says, we know from the Medrash, not only did the man taste like any food in the world, the man smelled like every food in the world. Who knew that one? Raise your hand if you knew that one. The man smelled like every food in the world. If you closed your nose while you were eating the man, you were missing out on awesomeness, sheba awesomeness, sheba awesomeness. Because it not only tasted like everything, it smelled like everything. And it looked amazing also, as we'll see in a second. But not only that, Chazal tells us you could taste any food while you had it, which is why it was so hard to name. Man who? What is this thing? It's got everything in it. Everything is in the man itself. I'm going to go on to that. Tam Vidas quotes a Medrash Tanchuma that the, old, that the young men ate lemon like bread. Older men thought it tasted like honey wafers. Young kids thought it tasted like their mother's milk. While sick people tasted fine flour mixed with oil. Non-Jews, says the Medrash, tasted something bitter. Like coriander before you sweetened it with anything else. Interesting. The assumption is that the mun had a natural taste as something bitter. But if you ate it with proper intentions, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu allowed them to taste whatever they wanted in it, which answers the Gemara in Yuma, what it means in Yuma that it tastes like anything. You tasted what you wanted it to taste like, and there were people who Mamish took the mun and said, this is the most disgusting thing in the world, which answers a real major question. The mun was throughout the Midbar, right? Why in the world did no other nations come out and be like, this is awesome. This solves our Parnassah problem forever. Why wouldn't they have eaten it? The Gemara says that the animals were eating it, that the deer ate it, and if you ate a deer that had eaten the mun, it also would taste like anything. But wouldn't everybody have known about this? Wouldn't people have been like, this is awesome. A mully comes and fights Klagisrol. All they have to do is take a scoop and be like, we don't need anything for the rest of our lives. This tastes like anything. Why wouldn't they do that? The answer was, they couldn't taste anything, and it tastes like sawdust to them, like garbage, like bitter. They couldn't taste anything because the Kurdish Baruch only allowed B'nai Yisrael to taste it and that's that. Nobody else did it. Rav Shimon Schwab says, if a person only ate the mun when he was hungry, then it tasted like that specific taste, like honey or this or that and the other throughout the Medrash. If someone wanted to taste something else and think about it, he wasn't just hungry, he wasn't just stuffing in his face. He wanted to think about it, then it turned out to be whatever he wanted it to be. Is that amazing? Absolutely amazing. So you have to actually think about it. The Rashbam and the Chizkuni point out later on Parsh Baloscha that the mun tastes like Lashad Hashemen, not just like this taste of oil, uh, this taste of honey over here, but it also tastes like Lashad Hashemen. He brings the Gemara in Yuma and he says the older men did taste it like oil, while the younger men tasted it like it was something like honey. He answers if you ate it without grinding it up or doing anything to it, then it tastes like honey, like nuts that are sweeter when you don't do anything to it. If you crush it and ground it up, it could be used as a type of oil, just like nuts can be used into an oil, like a sesame seed oil or a poppy seed oil. You could turn it into that or soybeans. That's why it says, V'tamoy kitzapichus vidvash. Its actual taste was like honey. V'tamoy was lashad ha-shemen. 
If you switched it, then it came something different. The Malbum says it depended on Shabbos and during the week. During the week, it tasted one way. On Shabbos, it tasted another way. During the week, it tasted like the oil. On Shabbos, it tasted like honey. I don't know. We can't prove any of this. It's just different answers that go through. But let's go into this entire thing. Hold on a second. Medrash Talpio says it tastes like anything you wanted it to taste like. Fine. Based on the Medrash that we have, the Midrashim that say that. So to the Be'er Shomirim. Tasted like whatever drink you wanted, to, you wanted it to taste like. Did anybody know that? The Be'er Shomirim as well? We know about the Mun. Did you know about the Be'er Shomirim? No. Right? That's amazing. The Otsur Plos the Torah brings a Chsam Sofer in Devarim who says the Mun tasted like anything they wanted it to taste like except for wine. Because Lavan refers in the first Pasuk in Devarim, or the second Pasuk in Devarim, refers to the Mun. So it tastes like anything white, but it couldn't taste like wine. The only thing in the Mun didn't taste like, which means, according to this, the Mun tastes like drinks as well. <laughs> if you wanted to have the Mun and have it be, I don't know, apple juice, the Mun could be apple juice. It would taste like apple juice. It's like your own little jelly belly collection. You know what I'm saying? It was your own thing where you could have absolutely anything you wanted. There's a Shalz Juvis Afarksa Dania that asked the question. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hold on a second. He asked around 150 years ago, are you allowed to taste in the Mun taste of something that's usser? Could you have a cheeseburger from the Mun? Could you taste a cheeseburger in the Mun? Could you taste chazer, like pork, bacon? Were you allowed to have that in the Mun itself? Were you allowed to do that? He says, there's no wicker here, so it seems like it shouldn't be an issue. If you have pork-flavored gum, right, made with natural flavors, of obviously, right, but something that's kosher, is that okay? Are you allowed to have pork-flavored gum? Yeah. Are you allowed to have a burger that tastes like cheeseburgers? Yeah, you're allowed to have it. So it says, Charles Jewess, since there's no issue with the ichor, so there you should be perfectly fine. Panim Yafos, the Rebbe of the Chassam Sofer, the Hafla, agrees. He says the exact same thing. There is no problem with having it. You can have that taste, no issue whatsoever. But there's a Sifri. Listen to the Sifri. When you thought about a certain taste that you wanted the Mun to be, the Sifri te- says, not only did it taste like that piece of food, listen to Zelio, you ready? It looked like the food as well. It turned into the food that you wanted it to be. So according to that Sifri, I don't know if you were allowed to have something that was usser. Because if you wanted it to be like chazer, it looked like chazer. Now maybe you'll tell me, well, wait a second, Rabbi Zerman. If you go ahead and you take something that's plastic and you make it look like pig and then you inject taste in it and you make it taste like pig, right? So it looks like pig and it tastes like pig, but it's a piece of plastic. It's a piece of plastic. Or I don't know, it's something else. Wouldn't that not be a problem? I went to a restaurant in Seattle. It's a Chinese restaurant that claims they have these recipes from hundreds of years ago. It is entirely vegan. Entirely vegan. And cautious, yeah. I hope. At the time it was. Right? And it's entirely vegan. And it tasted mamish like chicken, sweet and sour chicken. Mamish like a, a wonton soup. So much so, my wife didn't tell me before we went that it wasn't fleshic. Because she knew I wouldn't go. Because she knows me, and I don't eat vegetables, because I'm a Jew. And because of that, I just thought, for sure, there's no way she, he's going to eat there. He, she didn't tell me. And I finished. I said, that was amazing, probably the best Chinese food I've had in my life, because I live in Chicago. And she looked at, oh, I shouldn't say that. Are there Chinese foods now? There's one place. No, except for certain, there is one place that still sells Chinese food. So no, I haven't had Chinese food. But I said, it was amazing Chinese food. There's two? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I forgot they do. Okay, either way, it was still the third best Chinese place that I've ever had in my life. It was amazing. And she told me afterward, it's, it's all vegan. And I was like, I, 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 don't want to, I don't want to know you. I don't want anything to do with you. But I'm telling you, it was amazing. Absolutely To the point where I would go back willingly, willingly, and have their soybean. It tasted like actual stuff. Like, I, I could not tell. Absolutely could not tell. So it might be 
that even though the Sifri says it looked like it and it tasted like it, it's not actual Chazer. So still it could be Mutter. But that's that. But the Chidush rim says it can never taste like anything that's Aser. Cannot taste like it. It wouldn't taste, it couldn't even taste like Chometz on Pesach. Couldn't even taste like Chometz on Pesach. That's what the Chidush rim says. The Chassam Sofer and Kiddush and Lama Chassam Abbas says as well. The Otsar Plos, the Torah brings down a lot of these Maramikomas as well. The Chidah answered the question. He said, what's the problem? Yalta said she wanted to eat in Chulin. I think it's in Kuflam I didn't look it up. I should have looked it up. But Chulin, she said, Yalta told her husband, Rav Nachman, I want to taste something that's Basra Chalov. He said, what's the problem? Eat a kechal, eat a, an udder of a, of a cow. The udder of the cow tastes like milk and meat. I don't know how. It's not exactly a cheeseburger. But she said, go ahead and have that. You want to have chazer? Eat the moach to shibuta. There's a brain of a shibuta fish that's supposed to taste like chazer. You want to have something that's chazer? There are ways to be able to make it mutter. In that way, says the Chidah, if that's true, then clearly you could have something that's mutter and tastes like something aser. So what's the problem? Even if it looks like it, shouldn't be a problem. That's what the Chidah says over here. The Kedushas Levi says it might be that you could only eat the mun. The mun only tastes like something that you've already had before. But you wouldn't have it before. But you gotta... What you can't mention this whole idea without Roshim and Schwab. Roshim and Schwab said when he was leaving Europe to go back to America, he spent a Shabbos in Radin with the Chavetz Chaim. On Lil Shabbos, the Chavetz Chaim, he was maybe 17, 16, 17, 18 years old. He was young, he was a buffer. On Lil Shabbos, the Chavetz Chaim asked, the Chazal say you could taste whatever you want in the man. All you had to do is think about it, and it tasted like that. What if you weren't thinking? And that's what the Chavetz Chaim asked everybody. Now, my opinion, I would have said immediately, Tzapichus Bidvash. It tastes like a wafer and honey. If you weren't thinking of anything, that's what it tastes. Or Lashad Hashemen. That's what I would have said. If somebody would have asked me that question, that's how I would have answered. But the Chavetz Chaim was not asking the question of the people of the table. Everybody understood it was a rhetorical question. They were silent. Chavetz Chaim answered them and he said, if you didn't think of anything, you didn't taste anything. The man is Ruchni. And spirituality has no taste on its own. That's why the people later on complained about the man. Aren't you wondering, how are there people complaining about this man? It might have looked like what they wanted it to be. It tasted like it. It smelled like it. Why would you complain? What would you complain about? If it didn't look like it, okay, I get it. It's stupid, but I can still get it. If it didn't taste like it, I can get it. But it looked, tasted, and smelled like it. What's the problem? Says the Chavetz Chaim. But if you didn't think, it's Ruchnius. You got absolutely nothing out of it. So people complained. They weren't thinking. It tasted like nothing. Or it tasted even bitter. Like the non-Jews tasted when they got it, it tasted bitter to them. And therefore is that. And says the Chavetz Chaim, it's the same exact thing when it comes to Torah. Torah is the sweetest thing. It's sweeter than honey. Sweeter than a honeycomb. That's what Torah is. But if you don't know what you're doing and you don't like it, then it tastes bitter to you. It tastes like a piece of garbage. It tastes like sawdust. Torah, when treated properly, is like dvash. When it's not, then it's tasteless. If there's kavana involved, if you're thinking about it, the Torah does something. And if not, it's not. That's why we say v'harev na'asham alakinu. Make it sweet for us, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Make it sweet for us so that we can taste it ourselves. And he adds, by the times of Mashiach, listen to this Chavetz Chaim, how Schwab says it, someone who wants Rukhnius will climb the steps and get everything he wants. You want to learn Torah, you'll learn Torah. You want to do everything. But there's going to be others who just don't get it. There's going to be others who mamish don't get it. And while you're seeing miracles, you're going to see Nisim. You're going to see crazy things happening. You're going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe I'm seeing this. That's going to be the times of Mashiach. There's going to be hundreds, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people who are going to look at the same thing you're looking at and say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? 
The same way that everybody looked at the lechem upon him and they saw fresh loaves. Nine days later, the loaves of bread, the lechem upon him was fresh and hot and warm. It was beautiful. The Mekalel, the guy who cursed out at Kaddish Baruch Hu, saw stale, moldy, nine-day-old bread. What you, how could he see that? It's clearly fresh and warm. The Kohanim are eating it. They love it. A tiny little bit filled them up. Because this guy, the Mekalo, didn't have that Ruchnius. And it's a Ruchni food, the Lechem upon him. So when he ate the Lechem upon him, when he saw the Lechem upon him, he said, oh, it's moldy, it's stale, it's old. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like that. When Mashiach comes, says the Chafetz Chaim, it's going to be where we're going to look at ourselves and we're going to see the things around us. And some people are going to be like, oh my gosh, we're flying on mamish eagles. I'm going to get down on an eagle. There's going to be a massive eagle that gets down in front of me, sort of like what tray you got in Never Ending Story, that little luck dragon. It's going to stand down in front of me. It's going to say, climb on my back, Tzvi. And I'm going to be like, I am in. And I'm going to go on the eagle's back. And I'm not going to care about how cold it is 10,000 feet up in the air. I'm going to skim over the water. It's going to be absolutely, I'm going to see the Leviathan down there. And I'm going to be flying over. And somebody else is going to turn to me and be like, what do you mean? It was an airplane. I'm going to be like, could you not see that? I was flying on a luck dragon. That's what I was flying on. I was flying on an actual eagle. And the guy's going to look at me and be like, well, it was an American eagle plane. Is that what you're talking about? Is that what you're doing? And I'd be like, are you kidding me? But I am going to look at it with eyes of Ruchnius because I have Kavana and I'm thinking about it and I'm going to taste everything in the world in my mun, in my Torah, in my luck dragon. And they, what are they going to do? They're going to sit there. They're going to be like, it's a plane. The Torah is not so good. And the mun tastes like sawdust. And it's terrible. And can you imagine? Can you imagine what they lost out on? What they missed out on? And they have no idea. They have absolutely no idea. That's the idea behind it. It's such an unbelievable line. Such an unbelievable schus that B'nai Yisrael had. And there's more. Obviously, there's satisfaction. There's something about this regarding whether or not you'd have to bench on it. What the bracha you make on it, which is not for this year. The shach on how it helped people learn. There's a shach, a chsam sofer. Chavetzelah Sharon goes on about this for a while. Torah's Moshe from the chsam sofer and the chidusha rim. But not for now. We're going to stop with this, guys. Have a great Shabbos.